Hey guys, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Squirrel with your weekly knock activism wrap up. Uh, today we're going to be talking about SB50 again, uh, cuts that uh, LA Metro is making for their service. Alex Villanueva's lackluster approach to actually kicking ice out of the jails as he had promised to, to do. And a quick note about the LA Justice Fund before we do, uh, let's call it a bit of a shallow but very broad dive into what's been happening in the state assembly, which is, frankly, a lot of stuff. Uh, how's it going, Bushido? It's going really well. I uh, I made it out to the Street Fight Radio show in Phoenix this week, and that was a lot of fun. So for anyone who doesn't know what Street Fight Radio is, check them out at streetfightradio.com. Uh, it's a couple of anarcho-comedians from the flyover states who do a really good job of like building solidarity and community, and it's just a really fun, like non-toxic place to be on the internet. Uh, one of my favorite Facebook groups, uh, and some place that I've just kind of consistently been impressed, because every time I show up to their shows, uh, I meet really cool people and make friends, and it's just really, really fun, and it's, it's something that I really, really enjoy. Uh, plus, they're funny as hell and like talking about what it's like to be broke and how capitalism sucks. Uh, you can also check them out on Means TV. If you've seen that, that's a capitalism meme, or that that's a capitalism meme. That's uh, Brian <laughs> yeah. from Street Fright Radio, and the uh, taller, uh, less, uh, or the the kind of taller, more tattooed guy is his partner Brett. So definitely check out Brett and Brian. They're definitely solid online podcasters, uh, and they composed with the best of them. Absolutely, they they uh, have quite a Twitter presence as well as making some very funny podcast content. Uh, I can also highly recommend them, although their yeah, no, their uh, live podcast can go real long sometimes. But you know, it's it's still really good content. So yeah, check them out. Uh, but yeah, they uh, their call in show can go like for three hours, but also you can yeah, just exactly. call in and talk stuff. So it's pretty fun. Like I at, at their live show, I got to tell the story of defy media going out of business so that was pretty fun uh people oh, really man. liked the fact that like my former colleagues were like straight up stealing computers when the company was like you're all fired and they're like i'll show you <laughs> oh man uh but so, yeah uh, yeah let's uh that's what let's happens. go ahead and hop <laughs> yeah but so uh, let's go ahead and hop into the news. So uh, SB50 is dominating all of California's housing, like Twitter and comments. It's uh, kind of the, the elephant in the room, as it were. Uh, obviously, it's chilling its heels till January 2020, but there's been some like polling data that's come out talking about how popular it is, supposedly. So let's, let's go ahead and tear that one open. For sure. Well, let's actually start out with uh, what a, just a quick recap on what the bill is going to do in case yeah. anybody hasn't been paying attention. So in short, it would be, um, I mean, not that they're not paying attention, but it's there's a lot going on. And let's just break it down. So in short, uh, SB 50 would upzone huge swaths of the state. Uh, what that means is that it would enable folks who own single family homes uh, to tear them down and replace them with duplexes, triplexes, or even quadplexes, which some places call them fourplexes. Uh, mm. There's lots of names for them uh, if they wanted to do that. So uh, it would also allow developers to build up to four housing units on empty lots virtually anywhere in the state, even if that plot was previously zoned for single family housing. Uh, it would also enable the construction of larger buildings in areas that are close to transit uh, or where the state has determined that there is a job rich environment. So this is where it really you know, harkens back to SB 827 from last year that we used to talk about all the time. Yep. Uh, and it included some provisions that would prevent landlords from evicting folks um, and then taking advantage of the law. But tenant organizations were quick to point out that these protections leave the onus 
for the it's the leave the onus on the renter to protect themselves really which for most renters is a dubious prospect as they often have less access to the systems that would help them uh help to protect them so uh for instance uh tenants don't often have uh, they don't often know the laws as well as their landlords because that's kind of like what the landlord's job is uh, or what protections they're entitled to under the law, which is why the Know Your Rights meetings are so important that are put on by tenant orgs around the state. Uh, they often don't necessarily have access to lawyers uh, to sue their landlords over fraudulent evictions, tenant harassment, etc. cetera. Uh, but of course, the landlords do have access to the lawyers because they are the ten, the landlords, uh, and yep. then in short, they're on. They're basically on the short end of the eviction stick. When it and while SB fifty theoretically protects them from the impacts of upzoning, uh, land uh, up, of from the impact of having an upzoning landlord, it really only does so in name only. Um, with all and, that and, being and said, part of oh, yep. part of what's been going on with the SB fifty like um, promotion side is they've been talking about other housing bills that are supposed to make up for these shortfalls with oh, SB yeah. fifty, which is partly <laughs> so that's like, why they don't need to include them in there, right? Well, and also part of it is is the way California like overall law is written. Like you have to re- restrain your bills to like you have to sort of stay in your lane. So you can't have like huge omnibus bills that cover like the entire state for fixing every single problem out there. So there's some weird kind of gamesmanship going on, putting the the onus to protect renters on other bills that are currently being debated yeah. before both the Senate and the Assembly. And I'm going to get into those later, but just kind of oh, keep yeah. that in mind as we go through this discussion that uh, a lot of the shortfalls in these bills are supposed to be fixed other places, uh, but that's also not really happening. Yep, exactly. So with all that being said, uh, here's what's happened to the bill uh, SB 50 in the last couple of weeks. So first, it passed through two of the three committees in the state Senate that were necessary for it to navigate before it could make it to the floor for a vote and then head over to the assembly to run through their committees and eventually make it to their floor for a vote over on that side, which is uh, which after which it would then be handed over to Gavin Newsom uh, to have him sign and then it becomes law. So that's what's supposed to have happened in the eyes of everyone who's participating, but that's not what's going on. Uh, it nope. sailed through the first committee, which was not a big surprise because it that's the committee that's chaired by Senator Weiner, who is the author of the bill. Uh, it got a significant overhaul in the second committee, again, unsurprising because that committee is chaired by Mike McGuire, who is the senator from Marin County, who had authored a competing upzoning bill, so they had to really reconcile the two of them. Everybody knew that was going to happen. No surprises. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, but we should also mm-hmm. uh, discuss the way that they reconciled the bill, which was basically to exempt Marin County specifically oh, yeah, from exactly. uh, all of this upzoning, and not by saying, hey, Marin County is is free of upzoning, but to pick a county size and a population density size that only fits in Marin County for saying, oh, no, you don't have to <laughs> <Basically>. upzone Marin <laughs> County, uh, which basically Mike McGuire's bill was going to do anyways. Like, he wrote a bill to save his wealthy homeowner constituents from having to deal with, you know, these dirty fourplexes in their neighborhood. So this was like some horse trading that was just cynically on the nose. It was very much like well, the no. legislative version of saying the, the quiet part loud. That, that, is, that is true, but it, 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 um, SB4 was actually called SB4 because it was all about doing just the quadplexes, basically stopping you from doing anything beyond that. So their fear in, uh, in Marin County and other, other places uh, that uh, McGuire was claiming to be, you know, uh, protecting the interest of is that they didn't want to see these five and six story buildings happening around transit stations in their neighborhoods because they are they don't want to see those big apartments come in. However, oh, the quadplex okay. thing is is was part of it. That's why it was SB four because he's very clever like that. Oh, um, all right, fair enough. 
Yeah. So then after that second committee, the, the, uh, the bill became quite complicated relative to its original format, as we just discussed. Um, but it's still been labeled as a quote unquote, one size fits all uh, solution by a large number of the critics, including those here in L.A. at our city hall, uh, which, frankly, it's not at all correct to call it a one-size-fits-all bill, given the fact that it now has such a huge number of variations between what the county size is, how close you are to the water determines how tall the buildings are allowed to be. Uh, there's there's a lot of changes to it, so it's definitely definitely not a one-size-fits-all bill. Um, and it also however, goes, it, it also bends itself in knots to like make oh, yeah. allowances for local zoning requirements and to give developers yep. and uh, municipalities like ways to restrict the amount of upzoning or not build as much affordable housing to still access the incentives. Like yep. there's a lot of loopholes in this bill if you really, really wanted to build uh, a big market rate development. Exactly. So but then this all came to a crashing halt uh, this last week when the bill was converted without warning into a two-year bill uh, by Senator Anthony Portentino from Pasadena, who is the chair of the third and final committee that the bill had to get through before it could go to be voted on by the full California State Senate. Of course, uh, this was all very upsetting for supporters of the bill, and it's especially true for the folks over at California Yimby. Uh, in response to the delay, California Yimby started sending a number of letters and furious tweets to both Senator Portentino and Senator Tony Atkins, who is the president pro tem of the Senate. Uh, and the reason why they're they're targeting Tony Atkins is because she's the one who uh, decided who got to be chairs of each committee. And she could, in theory, override Senator Portentino's decision and bring the bill forward for a vote. But at this point, that does not seem likely to be what's going to happen. In a, um, in a kind of but, funny, in a kind of funny bit of misdirected rage, people started mm -hmm. uh, tweeting at Assemblymember oh, yeah. Gonzalez <laughs> and yelling at her for holding up the bill. And she had to point out that it's the wrong chamber of our bicameral yep. legislature that people were yelling at. Which you know, just do some research, folks. Like Google is free. Well, I mean, to be fair, there's a there's an appropriations committee in both houses, um, and people who aren't really familiar with. The fact that SB means it's from the Senate and AB means it's from the Assembly, uh, you can get confused and just say, well, the chair of the appropriations uh, committee in the state legislature, uh, they, they must be yelled at because they are doing this thing to stop this housing bill that I am clearly super well versed <laughs> in. And yes. Um, but what we really want to get into is uh, that the there's one of those statistics that we mentioned earlier that California YIMBY has been throwing around left, right, and center about this bill, a purported 66% approval rating amongst the voting public. Um, so this number is coming from Lake Research Partners, who conducted the poll for California, California YIMBY, um, and they found that 66% of the 1,200 voters that they polled uh, supported the proposal, whereas only 18% of the voters polled uh, opposed it. Um, and, and this so, is, I gotta say, like, that one, the, the basic polling number that you want to hit just to be kind of like, to get it published in a paper is about a thousand people. Uh, what people don't mention about that, especially in California, is that's not a statistically significant sample size of our voting population. Like, <laughs> the, 1,200 people is not even 1% of the number of people who vote in a presidential election here. So that's not actually a useful metric to go by. They just kind of like, we like base 10 numbers and a thousand people seems significant. Uh, in the state of California, it's really not. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I mean, finding that percentage though was a, a huge shock to me, like that they were, that they pulled 1200 people and that 66% of them uh, were in favor of SB 50 uh, was, was just bizarre because 
everyone that I've spoken to from housing justice movement organizations uh, are frankly staunchly opposed to the bill. Uh, and so the support from the voters who were polled is probably coming from the fact that uh, this was how the poll framed this. Well, now we just spent the last few minutes describing what SB 50 is. So here is what the pollsters used for their question when they asked folks whether or not they were going to support it. Quote, Senate Bill 50 would change state law to allow more homes like apartments, townhouses, and triplexes, including affordable housing for lower and middle income families near public transit lines like buses or trains and in areas with a lot of jobs. I believe that's That's what we call a push pull. That <laughs> yeah, so this is extremely favorable way of describing an extremely complicated uh, bill that has a lot of issues that you know folks have valid criticisms of, and it just completely whitewashes over all of it. Um, and so well, also, when you phrase I, it like that, yeah, yeah, I was gonna say it's also like I keep getting caught up on their inclusion of the word affordable housing in here because when you look at SB yeah. fifty, it doesn't mandate affordable housing. It says you have to build in, in like uh, in compliance with local zoning laws that have to do with affordable housing. Uh, they start a a housing grant trust fund that you can use to build more affordable housing. But if that money doesn't get spent by the municipalities, then that money just goes back to the state to loan out in different ways. Like there's no guarantee that a developer that is going to be able to build something under SB 50 has to build any affordable housing. They just wouldn't be able to access incentives uh, to get to build it for more cheaply. Uh, and also there's no guarantee that any municipality has to spend that money on affordable housing. Like they could have millions of dollars sitting in their trust fund and not spend it for five years and not build a single unit of affordable housing. And like, that's the part where I'm really like hung up because, you know, it, Jeffrey Palmer showed that the state of California under the Costa Hawkins regime can't just build affordable housing. Like we got sued out of being able to mandate that. So we have to use these silly incentives and grant programs to try and do that. And it hasn't been super effective. So I'm kind of like hung up on this idea that SB 50 is supposed to be more effective at making this happen when we have a decade's worth of history showing that those kind of programs don't build more affordable housing if developers don't want it. That's not to say nobody's building affordable housing. It's just the minority of developers are actually building that, especially in these like transit-rich and job-rich areas because they're not looking for working-class, low-income families to move in there. They want wealthy people with good white-collar jobs to move in there so that they can just keep upping the rent year over year over year. Yeah, exactly. So it does have some, uh, there, there were some initial inclusionary requirements in SB 50. Um, I was actually just looking at the text of the bill right now to see if they managed to survive in any meaningful way. Um, and basically the only way that they get thrown in there is that, uh, folks are able to, you know, they've got a carve out talking about how you can use in lieu fees, uh, yep. to the local governments, uh, instead of providing affordable housing. Uh, so or, really, or you can, or you can promise to build affordable housing off site, which seems to defeat the purpose of building affordable <laughs> housing near transit lines and good jobs. Like there's all these little carve outs. And also that section you're reading, like I have read that probably 10 times in the last week and it melts your brain because it is just subclause upon subclause upon subclause that gets to the point of like, if you build affordable housing, we'll have some extra money for you to do that. Uh, and it's it's that's that specific uh, like section of the bill I feel like is almost written to be uh, opaque and hard to access and hard to get like your hand your your head around in any meaningful way. 
Yeah, it's basically there's there's a lot of stuff going on in this bill. It's very complicated. It's there are a lot of ways that folks can manipulate it and take advantage of it and then not actually provide the kinds of affordable housing that we desperately desperately need. And so when they phrase it the way that they did in that poll, it really isn't surprising that apparently 79% of renters who they polled uh, were in support. So, you know, that uh, push polling, come on. Um, but again, virtually no tenant organizations from anywhere in the state actually support this bill. Uh, yep. Most of the tenant organizations have been coming out vehemently against the bill and then they get called NIMBYs because that's what the NIMBYs, uh, that's the only way that the NBC see the world is if you're critical of SB 50 for any reason, even though there are so many loopholes in it, they just say, no, you must, we can solve it by just building and building and building and building. Uh, and the reality is that that's not going to be how we can actually solve our housing crisis here because it's going to have, there, there are all of these problems with the fact that we have a crisis in affordability much more than we have just a crisis in actual housing supply. Again, we have tons of vacant units all around LA County. We just don't have vacant affordable units that people can actually live in. So the next time that a Yimby on Twitter is telling you that you're fighting the will of the people by being critical of SB 50, tell them to kick sand. Yep. And if they want to come and if they come back at you and ask, say, uh, what it is it's going to take for you to get on board and support SB 50, maybe you suggest that including uh, mandatory inclusionary zoning uh policies into the bill uh, that would require something like 50 to 100% of the units be either affordable uh, or senior housing or any of the categories of housing that we actually have a dire need for across the state. Um, put that in the bill instead. What we do not need is to be incentivizing the construction of more market rate housing. That is the one type of housing that the market actually does uh, does provide for. It's funny how market rate housing is something that the housing market would actually provide. And and this huh. goes back to a lot of like a lot of long-standing issues we've had. You're like uh to start with Article 34 in the California Constitution oh, yeah. that basically makes it impossible to build low-income public housing because that has to get a local vote and yep. the people who tend to vote are going to be single-family homeowners or people in the capital class who don't want low-income housing. Uh and even beyond that we see at the at the Chinatown station uh which uh Chinatown for uh or the Chinatown community for equitable development is fighting yeah. because those Developers came in saying, hey, we'll provide 30% affordable housing. Then when the final or plans came 20, through, they're like, yeah. you know what? We Oh, was it 20? I it, think it was 20 in the initial plans, yeah. Yeah, and then they came through uh, with the final plans. <laughs> we're like, oh, yeah, we, we just threw out None. all the affordable housing. We're just not doing any of that. We, we were Jesus. just playing a shell game so that we could get <sighs> the approvals to break ground because once they've broken yep. ground, the city's going to let them finish because there's a vested interest in getting that tax revenue. And developers know they can play these games. And it's, it's oh, yeah. just incredibly frustrating to watch this time and again where we see developers clearly saying, we're here for the profit, and the city and the state being like, oh, we can totally trust them to look out for tenants. Absolutely. It's, yeah. yeah. It, it, Lucy and the football over and over and over again. And the, the SB50 proponents, like, you know, just to be clear, like, they're yeah. not <laughs> wrong. We need more housing. No. We need a lot more housing. And the fact that 60% of LA's, uh, 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 you know, property and 80% of our residential property is zoned single-family ho housing 
is absolutely insane, not just from a land use perspective, but from a climate change perspective. When yeah, you look oh, at sure. how much energy a single family home takes, it's, you know, if, if you have a five unit apartment building, you're using less energy than you would be in a single family home. But again, this is why I push back on the fourplex idea is you're not really saving energy or resources doing just fourplexes. You need density greater than that to really be seeing those returns on, uh, on energy efficiency and cooling costs and all of that stuff. And it's, it's like the answers are so like patently obvious, but the fact that everyone sitting in the legislature is a homeowner except for one representative. One, one. Yeah. (laughs) And something like 60% of them own a rental property of some sort. Like, Oh yeah, they're, they're landlords. Yeah, they're voting in their class interest and you know probably not because they're evil people or they're like, you know, trying to be a new sort of oligarchy but because that's what makes sense to them. They got into the capital owning class because they think it's the right thing to do and they're going to protect those interests and they're also not hearing from like tenants on the ground recently. It's it's very easy for them, especially in a state as huge as California, to avoid people who are actually suffering from their policies. Like McGuire up in Marin is not going to have LA Tenants Union showing up on his doorstep, but maybe we should. Yeah, I think that would be a good idea. <laughs> yeah. So let's uh so it, one of the big things about SB50 also is the sale of we're trying to sell the idea that we need more density around busy uh, metro stop, bus stops, train stops, all of those fun, you know, like public transit mm-hmm. things that we really like having a world class city in LA. Uh, and Metro <laughs> apparently seems to hate our trains and buses. So let's talk uh, about the Metro board because this is another thing to get angry about, folks. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think that they hate our trains and buses. I think that they just have some very interesting perspectives on how to deal with declining ridership numbers uh, around the city and county, which, you know, anyway, let's just go into it. So uh, LA Metro's board of directors voted this week to cut service on virtually all of their light rail lines as well as their buses. Um, All of these changes were approved in their new $7.2 billion budget for the upcoming fiscal year, which starts in July. While Metro is planning to monitor their ridership numbers and make adjustments to their scheduled service in case ridership drops off due to these new cuts in service, here's what they're going to be doing starting in July. And I'm just going to quote directly from Elijah Chilan from Curb, uh, Curbed because he did a great job of summarizing it. Quote, The financial plan includes a nearly 6% reduction in rail service hours, with the largest cuts planned on the Expo, Gold, and Blue lines. The change will result in fewer delays, according to Metro. Continuing, that means that for now, Expo Golden Blue Line trains will show up once every eight minutes during rush hour. Gold Line trains now arrive every seven minutes during peak hours, while Expo Line trains come in every six minutes. The Blue Line trains between downtown LA and the Willow Street Station come every six minutes prior to the line's partial shutdown, which began in January. And this is so, this is the thing that really boggles my mind, is for them to say, oh, we need to cut Expo Line service, especially during rush hour, because if you've ridden an Expo Line train during rush hour, it is effing packed like a sardine packed. can. Super packed. It is <laughs> the fact that they're like, no, we need fewer trains. It's it's just maddening. And I know people who live out on the west side and stuff, and it's actually kind of a pain for them where they're like, you know, there are times where I, I get back in my car or I drive to work because I just don't want to deal with that. And, you know, Buddha forbid that there's any kind of delay on the expo line during rush hour because then it's like those scenes from like, um, uh, shoot, I forget the station in Japan, but where they, they have, you know, the literal oh, ushers. The <laughs> yeah, who literally push you into the train. It's the like that. Packers. Yeah, and it's it's 
insane to look at because I know for myself, one of the reasons I won't ride the trains as much at night unless I'm like, you know, feeling like I have an hour to kill is when a red line only comes three times an hour. I like Friday night, I don't want to stand on a train on a sta- on a station platform for 20 minutes waiting for an effing train. You know, I have sexy, important people things to do. I would like to go spend <laughs> my money at LA's, you know, very robust nightlife scene. Uh, and instead uh-huh. the city's like, no, we're gonna stop you from doing that. We really we don't need that tax revenue. It's fine. We'd rather just have you sitting idle on a train platform where we've also decided you don't get cell service. So be bored and also don't contribute to the tax base for like an hour. Yeah. So the uh, the service on the weekends is also going to be impacted with this where they're going to be um, the off peak service extends. Now uh, it currently ends at 8 a.m. and then it goes into regular you know weekday or weekend day service. Uh, but they're going to extend that off-peak service time till 10 a.m. So these off-peak hours are when the trains are arriving, like you said, every 20 minutes instead of the 12-minute headways that they see during the peak hours over the weekend. Um, and part of the reason why they're they're claiming that they need to do this is because uh, they by running the trains less frequently, they're going to apparently increase reliability, uh, which they're saying is going to decrease delays overall, but you know, a decrease in service is a decrease in service and the delays are probably still going to be happening. So we're going to see what happens with the ridership numbers playing into this, but uh, I'm, I'm not super hopeful on that. Well, I also Um, think it's funny because like when you're standing mm -hmm. on a Metro platform, like, you know, anytime after 9 p.m. on a weekday or, you know, it, uh, on the weekends oh, yeah. during off-peak hours, they have that big yellow sign-up because they don't tell you when the train is coming. There's just a sign on the TV monitors that says, because of maintenance, <laughs> we're running late. And it's like, for the last five years, they've been pl- they've just been blatantly lying to their riders. Uh, and also, if, if their argument is, well, we want the trains to last longer, I mean, you can get more trains, like have more train cars to run. And it... it it's ah yeah it's crazy. So and on on top of all of this, Metro is also going to be shaving a full 75,000 hours of service on its high frequency bus lines. Uh because the they're apparently the frequency of these buses is based around the number of riders who have to stand instead of getting a seat. So they're apparently working well enough for that, so let's just cut the number of buses. Um it's it's frankly shocking to me that they're expecting that cutting the service on the buses and trains is somehow going to fix their lagging ridership numbers, which have been getting quite a bit of publicity lately. Um, and as a final note, the, oh, uh, before I jump into the final note, final note, here is a preceding final note. One of the reasons why they're saying that they need to uh, decrease the frequency of these uh, car, of the trains that are running on the on the expo line uh, is actually because of them getting stuck in traffic where they have to, you know, fight with cars for access to the road. And they also have to stop at red lights, which is mind blowing that we're still using. uh, We're not giving them signal priority in LA. I think that because so the, the sequel rules about, uh, you know, total vehicle miles traveled uh, should be coming into effect soon if they haven't already, but I'm, I'm shocked that they haven't, pushed for that change to happen on the expo line, which would allow them to say, well, look, we're actually making an improvement in like this, this, the, the California environmental impact of having the expo line get signal priority. It's better from the environmental perspective to give them signal priority versus having them stuck waiting for cars and waiting for lights, which is the way it is right now. So uh, I don't understand why Metro is doing this, but, um, 
Anyway, as a final note, the long-awaited bus lane project that we're still waiting for uh, is now going into planning for, it's still going into planning for a pilot project uh, perpetually. It's just never going to end up getting built, it seems. Test all the Um, things. Yeah, exactly. So Mayor Eric Garcetti, who is a uh, member of the board uh, at Metro, of course, along with a couple of folks from city from city council, as well as I think like all of the board of supervisors, um, he joked that the bus only lanes here in LA are only quote slightly less controversial than congestion pricing. So it's really not that surprising that he's not prioritizing the, this this bus lane project. Uh, and that it's still in its pilot stages. They're still trying to figure out where it's going to go, and that it might not actually ever happen, despite the fact that protected bus lanes have been implemented with huge success in cities literally all around the world. And it's the simplest, easiest thing to do to increase the capacity of your bus system and increase the uh, ridership numbers and and the quality of the service is giving them a dedicated bus lane. Well, and it's one of these things where back in the day when they were planning the the Expo line, uh, they decided to go at grade uh, because they literally took uh, the the sort of uh, consultants lies at face value because they were basing their their plans for the expo line off of at grade rail that's that exists in Houston and exists in Tampa well it turns out that the consultants who were pushing those at grade rail lines were lying about the number of accidents and the wait time for the trains so the city of LA made a terrible decision based on terrible data that they paid through the nose for and it's funny too because when you look at cities around the world like Portland like San Francisco where they've implemented all door boarding where they have more protected bus lanes or at least dedicated bus lanes during rush hour we know that the numbers work out in favor of more ridership and and quicker bus trips and so the city doesn't need to keep doing these pilot programs and testing like LA is not materially different than these other cities it's just one of the most ridiculous things where it's like other cities have done this for a long time you can trust them like I don't think the city of Portland has a vested interest in lying to the city of Los Angeles but the consultants we pay six figures to they have a vested interest in lying and getting their way and it, it, it we keep seeing the best laid plans of mice and men here just going to pot and then Metro coming back and being like oh you know what we, we only did half measures and didn't do everything right look at that the, it just didn't work I just I, we better just do away with trains yeah. well exactly. and then also like uh, Sheila Cool came out and she was like the problem with Metro is it's basically a jobs program. And that is so bald-facedly cynical. What? Well, and here's what pisses me off about that. Back in the day oh. when they were talking about expanding buses or expanding trains, one of the reasons they didn't want to expand buses was, one, the buses have a much higher impact on on the quality of our asphalt. Like, big buses running over those, you know, the, the streets all the time tear up the pavement, especially when you're not taking care of your streets. Oh, for the, sure, yeah. So they were like, hey, let's switch to smaller, more frequent buses. But that would require them to hire more drivers, which they didn't want to do. So that's one of the reasons LA pivoted towards trains, because you don't need as many drivers to move as many people. So when the County Board of Supervisors come out and says, this is a job program, after that that same body has acted to stop more people from being hired. Like my brain explodes. Like Uh. it's so cynically dumb. And also like who cares if it is a jobs program, a people need jobs and they need to effing go places. You know, I don't like, this isn't TSA. This isn't a jobs program that's fundamentally harmful and degrading to people. It's, you know, I always say thank you to the bus driver because they're a working class hero. We want more of those. Absolutely. And honestly, if we're going to do anything, 
uh, meaningful in this city to actually tackle the fact that we are so entirely reliant upon cars and that our, tr- our uh, transportation, uh, car- the greenhouse gas emissions from transportation in the state of California are now the single biggest uh, contributing factor to our greenhouse. Like transportation is the biggest contributing factor to greenhouse gas emissions here in the state. They, it surpassed the fixed emissions from power plants a couple of years ago and it continues to climb. And until we stop having so many cars on the street, we're never going to be able to make a dent in that. And until we convince people to actually take the bus and take the train and get on public transit, that's we're not going to be able to make the differences that we need to do in order to not have our oceans boil and all of our forests burn down every single year. So, yep. Uh, yeah, let's move on to talk about the sheriff a little bit. Oh, we're <laughs> we're gonna end on a happy note. Okay, cool. Yeah, uh, Sh- yeah. Sheriff Dave Nueva. He's he has proven himself to be just a really stand-up guy who's making all of the right decisions. Uh, so let's talk about what he did right this week. Uh, well, yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Los Angeles Sheriff uh, Alex Villanueva promised to kick ICE agents out of the jails. Uh, and made that promise a central part of his campaign to replace uh, Sheriff McDonald, and he, you know, succeeded in that. And he Though made I, his I, promise. I will have to say he telegraphed this a little bit during the campaign when people really held him to account as to what this would actually mean. And uh-huh. his answer was basically, "Oh, we'll hand them over to ICE outside the jail." Uh, so surprise, not surprise. Um, so again, yeah, in a sadly unsurprising move, Sheriff, uh, Villanueva has failed to deliver on that promise because he did what he said he was going to do. Um, instead of ending all ICE activity in the county jail system, he has only really banned uniformed ICE agents from accessing these facilities. Folks who do contract work with ICE are still allowed to come in and pick the folks up for deportation. Um, Herman Vera, who is a member of the Sheriff's Civilian Oversight Commission, said that, quote, our recommendations are needed more than ever to send a message to the community that you can trust your L.A. Sheriff's Department. Report crimes, report them, report them, report them. What he's talking about here is the fact that when people in the Latino community uh, are facing the possible consequences of ICE agents getting involved with any time that there's somebody uh, from the sheriff's department showing up or detaining anybody, uh, then you might get handed over to ICE for deportation. It immediately has a uh, a, a quenching effect on the number of folks that are going to be actually reporting crimes. And they've seen this in study after study and in articles discussing this issue uh, across the country that they've seen uh, since Trump took power the number of crimes that are being reported in Latino communities has gone down dramatically because people are afraid of uh, basically firing up that deportation machine. So this is a a real fear and it has a meaningful impact on the safety of folks who are relying upon sheriff's departments and other groups to provide protection and provide, you know, the law enforcement mechanisms that we have available to us. Well, we've, uh, we've when, seen this in uh, the the task forces, especially like going back to uh, Claudia Rueda's story. She got involved in like the deportation machine because her mom was arrested as uh, on an immigration violation when their apartment was raided by narcotics officers as part of a federal task force. So the the police in L.A. took her into custody, checked her immigration documents, and were like, "Oh, you're not being accused of a crime in this case, but we're going to introduce you to these ICE." 
ICE agents that we just happened to bring along with us who are now going to take you into custody. So even though she hadn't committed a crime, um, because being in this country without documentation is a civil offense, not a criminal offense, they still handed her over to ICE. Like, LAPD and the LA County Sheriff's Department work hand in hand with ICE and people have a very credible fear that any crime that pops up or any time they talk to an, a law enforcement officer, their data could be given to the federal government. And even if they're not picked up that day, it could be like Claudia where the you know CPB waited two weeks and then literally kidnapped her off the street. So this is you know something that for, for folks like you and me who are you know documented and always had citizenship may not seem scary. In other places, in, in uh, neighborhoods like Boyle Heights where there are a lot of people without documentation, sometimes your neighbors just don't come back one day. Yeah, and that's terrifying. Um, just straight up terrifying. Uh, and so, the, as a as a uh, a related thing with this is that you know per uh, S, was it SB fifty four or was yeah, it SB fifty four? SB fifty four is the uh, sanctuary state. Well, gotcha. Yeah. So scare quotes sanctuary state. It's not actually it, that, yeah. but we'll 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 stay away from that <laughs> for the moment. But per SB fifty four, the uh, there isn't actually any mandate for the sheriff to be working hand in hand with ICE doing anything, but. Uh, Sheriff Villanueva currently has on his payroll uh, 13 quote-unquote custody assistants whose job it is to screen the requests that ICE deliver to them uh, and then figure out whether or not they're going to be handing folks over to ICE in return. Uh, each of those people is a $106,000 budget line item per year for a total annual cost of $1.4 million. So the Civilian Oversight Commission for the sheriff, uh, they were pointing out that that money could really be spent elsewhere to much I, I, greater effect. Yeah, I mean, it could probably be spent on fulfilling SB 1421 requests very effectively. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Uh, low blow there and also extremely accurate and necessary and totally related to other things that we've talked about, but we're not going to go into today. <sighs> so another thing that was um, brought up, there was some really great reporting from the LA times about this. Uh, they spoke with a guy named Kent Mendoza, who is policy coordinator for the anti-recidivism co coalition. And he told the LA times that quote, I really believe that we shouldn't be making it harder for this population that's already dealing with many barriers as immigrants in this country by continuing to dehumanize them, by calling them illegal aliens, by excluding them from having rights within the county jail. Uh, it's worth pointing out that Kent also told Times that he had himself been transferred to ICE custody while serving time in the county jail and that he had been an undocumented immigrant at that point in time, though he now has legal immigration status within the country. And he did tell the Times that he had actually had his criminal record expunged. So as far as people with like firsthand experience go, this guy sounds like he's the real deal and maybe we should be listening to him and not actually continuing to do what Alex Villanueva is doing. Well, and also one of the fun things that we've learned about ICE is that they don't necessarily care if your records have been expunged because they might have been expunged at a local and state level. But if you end up in a federal database, they may not clean that database and they may still come pick you up as a criminal alien, even if you have no standing criminal record, because they don't really care about whether you're a criminal or not. It's literally just racist Gestapo stuff at this point and kicking out people who are seen as like not being you know, worthy enough to be in this country. Uh, and it's it's just fundamentally stupid. Uh, but it does allow us to roll right into our next topic, which I wanted to talk a little <laughs> bit about, the failure of LA City Council to renew the LA Justice Fund. So the LA Justice Fund yeah. was a fund of a couple million dollars that was supposed to help defend LA County residents who didn't have documented status to defend themselves against deportation hearings. Because when you're brought into the deportation machine, you don't have the same rights as an American citizen. Like, you as an American 
American citizen, when you're facing trial by the government, have a right to an attorney. Now, it's debatable as to whether or not that right is always fulfilled, uh, because we know uh, public defender's offices across the country are severely understaffed and underfunded, but you at least have the right to have an attorney. When you're an undocumented person in this country, you don't even have that. So you can see the videos online of like judges just going through 30 people, like banging the gavel and saying, deport, 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 deport. And especially, this becomes especially problematic when a lot of the folks going up in front of these deportation courts... They don't speak English. Exactly. It's it's maybe their second <laughs> language. Um, you know, also, Los, not just Los Angeles, sorry, but, you know, the United States of America has no official language. You know, we tend to treat it as though it's English, and you're supposed to be speaking English in an official capacity, but that's not a hard and fast rule anywhere. And a lot of the immigration judges, they're not fluent in Spanish. They're not fluent no. in specific dialects. Um, imagine if you came from Brazil, where, like, they speak Portuguese. That would just blow the judge's mind. Uh, (laughs) You know, so the the LA Justice Fund, which was pushed by, uh, you know, ICE out of LA, as well as the Mm -hmm. ACLU, as well as the the National Lawyers Guild, you know, all of Mm -hmm. the good, like, lawyerly folks that we have in the city thought this was a great idea. It has a lot of robust public support, uh, but after two years, the city of Los Angeles has decided it's not worth it to re-up that fund, and their excuse has been, oh, well, it was always just a trial period. You know, we wanted to see what it would be like to protect our residents for two years, and I guess we just decided we didn't like, you know, protecting Angelinos. It just wasn't really our style. It's absolutely infuriating. I mean, it was a trial run, but it was also a very successful one and it was doing a good thing. So why, just why, why would you cut the funding for this? This is something that is such a no brainer. And like I was at the budget hearing uh, or the budget committee hearing where they were talking about this stuff. And so, so many people got up there and were like, Hey, Fund this. This is something that we need. This is something that is good. There were people there from public council. There were people there from like the ACLU. There were a bunch of other immigrant rights uh, groups that were all present and they were all talking about how we need to keep this funding because this is such an incredibly important program and it has massive ramifications if we cut it. Yeah, and it's it's also one where when you you know to to flash back to our last story, you know, one point four million dollars spent on these custody assistants is a pretty significant chunk of what was allocated towards the justice fund. Uh, so if we've got one point four million dollars to lubricate the deportation machine, it seems like we've already got a body of money in the county that we could be using to you know stop the deportation machine instead of just saying you know Trump is a bad man and we resist him and we don't like him, but we're totally going to just roll over and go with all of his policies because uh, I don't know reasons. Uh, so well, the, the justice fund was from the city budget, not from the county, right? But still, yeah, nonetheless, I mean, it, on, it's guys. more like there's there's <laughs> money out there, you know, and it, yeah, it's not like absolutely. the county of L.A. can't give money to the city of L.A. Like they totally Correct. do that all the time. You know, I realize I'm I'm mixing and mashing pots of money, but also I like to push back on this idea that we have in government budgeting that like pots of money are sacrosanct and once we say money is for this it can never be used for that like yeah, it's all no. the same effing money you know it's not disney money it's not like if i take my my mickey dollars and try to go to universal studios and it doesn't work <laughs> it, it's all american dollars and money even even money. then you know it's not a suitcase full of cash that has to be transported 
It's just digits in a computer. Like literally transferring that money from one fund to the other is a few keystrokes, a few seconds worth of time. You know, just to, to like really blow this up because it, it, I love the statistic is back during 2008, the Federal Reserve created $12 trillion to bail out banks. $12 trillion. They just gave away. They just made it up on a computer, gave it to the banks to do what they wanted with it. We, we live in a fiat money world. We live in a world where money isn't a thing that actually exists. We're not tied to a gold reserve or anything. We can just make all of the money that we need to spend on the stuff that we need for our people. And yet we keep having these austerity politics where we're like, man, I would love to protect your neighbors, but we just can't do that. We're just too broke to do that. But at the same time, here's, you know, a million and a half dollars for Michael Moore who retired for an effing day and gets a massive payout under our stupid drop program. The money clearly (laughs) exists. It's it's there. We know where it is and it's not in our pockets. It's in the pockets of, you know, Rick Caruso and Philip Anschultz and Michael Moore and uh, it's just really, really dumb. You know, again, like... We need to end the drop program. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as a, it, just to throw out another number that's got me kind of like riled up at the moment, we're giving no. $17 million <laughs> in tax breaks to ho- uh, a hotel in downtown. $17 million oh, yeah, in tax w- breaks. Yeah. Clearly, we've got $17 million we don't really need. Like, This seems like a much better use oh. of it than like another hotel uh, where yeah, you as an Angelino that, are not going to stay. Correct. And on top of that, this hotel in particular is one that is replacing rent-stabilized units that uh, are going to get torn down to build it. So that's fun, and it's going to be over next to USC in an area that's already been massively hit by gentrification thanks to the university that you and I both attended at least, um, and also continues to show up in the news for not good reasons at all. Uh, Yeah, they're building that hotel right there, and it's getting tax breaks, and it's tearing down rent-stabilized units. So... Let's keep getting frustrated, shall we? <laughs> yeah. Uh, on that note, uh, so let's go ahead. As we promised you all at the top, we're going to dig into dun, the dun, assembly dun. a little bit. So we're going to give a, a brief overview real quick of some bills that like caught my attention that I think you should know about. Um, this is not going to be definitive by any stretch of the imagination. No. Uh, it is going to be a little bit long, so I hope you strap in. Uh, and you may want to take <laughs> notes. Don't worry. When you check the, the, uh, the episode description, <laughs> yeah, when you check the episode description, I am going to have links to all of these bills there. So if you aren't writing them all down, uh, you will be able to kind of follow up on them. And we will be sort of shepherding some of these through as they get to the Assembly, or sorry, as they get to the Senate, and then hopefully get yep. signed by uh, Gavinator Newsom. Uh, but we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll see how that one goes. So it is that magical time of year when bills are heading to the assembly and the Senate floor to finally be passed or not. There are literally thousands of bills across both chambers. I, I think by my count, it was around 2000 bills in the assembly alone. So we're not going to cover them all. And these cover everything from, you know, like the budget to statewide bills to like, we want to give mm-hmm. a grant to this park in like San Francisco. So we don't need to really hit all of them. But there are some really interesting bills that I wanted to talk about. Uh, Like I said, this week, we're only going to hit the Assembly. Uh, There's just way too many bills in both houses to cover them. Uh, We'll hit the Senate next week, as well as keep you updated on any bills that I like kind of flag for right now. Uh, Mm -hmm. So let's get started with the criminal legal system and policing bills. So at the top, we have 
Assembly Bill 392. Now, this is a really big one, which covers police use of deadly force. Under current law, a police officer can deploy deadly force when making an arrest. I believe the, the language in the law is affecting an arrest, uh, when there's whether there is imminent threat of harm or not. Now, this law has pretty much not been updated since 1872, uh, which is one of the oldest police use of force laws in the country, like that we have just not updated. In California, again, you know, we finally got through police transparency with SB 1421 last year. We're finally talking, tackling police use of force this year. And it's been, you know, well over a century since this was last really dealt with at the state level. So it's not a stretch to say that this law is responsible for the number of officer involved shootings and the lack of prosecution of officers who fire their weapons on duty, because it's really hard to prove that a cop shouldn't be shooting when the only standard is were they trying to arrest someone. So AB 392 would reform our current standards and re would require, quote, that the officer reasonably believes that deadly force is necessary to defend against an imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury to the officer or to another person, or to apprehend a fleeing person for a felony that threatened or resulted in death or serious bodily injury if the officer reasonably believes that the person will cause death or serious bodily injury to another unless that person is immediately apprehended. So Now that is really super, super clearly written, isn't it? It's it, it it's uh, <laughs> mixing and matching participles. Uh, there's like three different people going on in here. But, you know, in plain English, uh, an officer can only use their gun if their life is being threatened or if somebody else's life is being threatened or if the person they're trying to arrest just harmed someone. So that's yep. a much better use of, of force kind of bright line than what we've got now. It's still not great. You know, I'm still in favor of disarming the cops because I don't think the state <laughs> should be allowed to, you know, just execute someone. But there are good arguments to be made that there are too many guns out there already in the hands yes. of civilians, so it's dangerous. But without getting into that too much, this is a this is a good <laughs> Reform. That's not a it's a good worms. start. <laughs> yeah. Now, so far, it just passed out of the rules committee today, from what mm -hmm. I understand, or this week. So it's still waiting to head to the floor for a vote. And there's going to be a lot of opposition. We have very deep pocketed police unions here. Yes. They're going to fight against this tooth and nail, just like they did on SB 1421. Uh, remember, the police unions spent big at the last minute, made a lot of calls, almost defeated 1421, but they were not able to overcome robust public support. So like 1421, AB 392 has the backing of Black Lives Matter and was brought to the legislature in response to the shooting of Stephon Clark, who was killed by Sacramento PD in his backyard. You might remember this. It made national headlines. Now, despite yes. claims by the officers that they felt threatened by Clark, none of the bullets that hit Clark were, were fired while he faced the officers. Instead, six of the eight bullets that hit him hit him in the back and the other two hit him in the side. The gun that the officers claimed to have seen was actually his white iPhone and in the police report, and this is something that still amazes me, the cops both described the phone that he was holding it was differently. Black, right? Well, they oh, said, one of them said it was black, the other one said it was white, I believe, but they couldn't even agree. And I think this points to not just the, the lack of credibility of, of eyewitness accounts, but the fact that we're trusting officers who are human, and humans make mistakes all the time. Like, your eyes yeah. and your brain are constantly lying to you. And yet we trust them to pull out a gun and shoot at someone, believing that they know what's going on. And so, at this point in time, all a cop really has to do to get out of prosecution is be like, oh, I was afraid for my life. Whether yep. or not that's reasonable or not is a whole different can of worms, but... 
hopefully this will push back on it. Now, the police unions are saying this would make life more dangerous for the police. They won't be as willing to use their guns. Uh, and I, I'm okay with that one. Um, you know, it, yeah, to an extent, like, this, like is, this is the goal. Stop it, using if, the guns to kill people. And also don't be as much of a Rambo. Like if you're afraid of going after someone because you think you might shoot them and end up in jail, like wait for backup, call in an air unit. Like we have lots of ways to find people. Like in, in today's very connected world, you can find people after the fact. Now it's one thing if you think that guy is going to harm someone immediately, but very rarely is that the case. Like most people who run from the police in their car, they're not going to hurt someone else. They're just trying to get away from the cops. Uh, it's, you know, we have this weird good guy, bad guy mentality still. And we, until we kind of fix that in society and realize that like people who commit crimes are not bad people who deserve to be hunted down, we're going to have a hard time overcoming these objections from police unions. But hopefully again, we're going to see some good movement on this. Uh, call your assembly members, tell them to vote yes on this. Um, you know, the, the police unions are going to be spending big money and trying to throw around a lot of weight to stop this. We definitely want to start pushing back on their influence. All right, so let's move on to Assembly Bill 927, which also relates to the criminal legal system. It's a pretty good step towards no longer punishing people for being too... for being too poor to pay court fines and fees. So this would mandate the courts assess a defendant's ability to pay any fines or fees based on their housing situation, their income, or if they're sentenced to life or if they're sentenced to a state prison. So like right now, if you get hit with court fines and they send you to a state prison and you can't pay your fines while you're in prison because you're not allowed to work for money, when you get out, they could come arrest you again for not having paid the fees since you were in prison. So Which that just sounds like such a stupid way to be doing things, but you know. Common sense. Catch-22s, right? We, we love them. Oh, yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, and we know that many people who are caught out in our cities find themselves trapped in the cycle of arrests and fines. Like, you get picked up for, like, public loitering or public drunkenness. You get yep. fines that you can't pay. Suddenly, those fines turn into arrest warrants. That sends you to jail, which just means those fines and fees are going up more and more and more. You can't get good credit. You can't find a place to live because you suddenly have this criminal record following you, which only exists because you're too poor to pay the onerous fees that the court is charging you. Uh, this, fortunately, sailed its way through the assembly, so it will be making its way to the Senate soon. Yeah, it seems pretty, like, obviously a good thing and something we should be doing. Like, don't punish someone for not having enough money. That doesn't help. Yeah, no, it it absolutely does not. And it is absolutely such a huge issue for us here uh, in L.A. especially. And and it's one of those big things that when you talk to folks who are on the streets and are, are unable to get themselves into housing, a lot of the time they have these outstanding legal issues and legal debts. And that is a non-trivial part of why it is that they can't scrape together the money to get, you know, their deposit to put in for getting into an apartment. And it's, it all just adds up so quickly. Well, and it's also, you know, the only demographic seeing more arrests in LA are people who are experiencing housing insecurity. So this is just making sure we're not punishing people twice because they can't afford a place to live in our gentrifying city. Uh, Let's move on to AB 965. So this one also passed out of the assembly. It requires the state to count time served for juveniles towards any possible sentence they receive. So it's not super widely known unless you've had... (laughs) Yeah, that's, so it, that's not already a thing. 
it's not. And there's a lot of problems with our juvenile justice system. So a lot of people don't know this, but for juveniles, there aren't as many protections against long jail times while waiting for trial. Like you don't have the same right to a speedy trial when you're arrested as a juvenile. And then if you're convicted, the time that you did spend waiting for trial does not count towards your sentence. So this has helped put a lot of pressure on our broken criminal incarceration system. Yes. That's absolutely absurd. Like, why, why is it that we are allowing children who are being arrested for crimes that they may or may not have committed, why are they not entitled to at least as, as speedy of a trial as an adult, if not a speedier one? Because they, I mean, it just blows my mind that this is a thing that is, you know, not prioritized, that yep. it... Ah, uh, oh, come on! Well, and it's, it's also worse about the you... child separation stuff going on down at the border, and yet this is happening here in our to our own U.S. citizens that people are, you know, supposed to be. It just ah. Uh, well, my we, we brain also is breaking right now. We also know from the numbers that the sooner you're able to get young people who have like problems with the law into therapy yeah. to get them services that they need for mental That's health, the less likely better. they are to reoffend. Exactly. So we're literally making things worse for young people through this system. And we know that the, the our juvenile incarceration system is incredibly broken. The LA Times has been doing some really good Ugh. reporting, talking about the staffing shortages and other like problems with the yep. violence that we've been having at these camps and these facilities. And so getting more kids locked up for longer is not going to make those problems better. This is a really good step to getting kids out of the uh, criminal legal system and out of the carceral state sooner and hopefully getting them the treatment that they actually need. We also know being at home with your family and in your community means you're less likely to reoffend. You're less likely to fall into these problems rather than for having, sure. you know, losing years of your life when you're, you know, very young and getting started and having that sort of set the tone for the rest of your life. So, uh, the assembly did a, a really good move passing this one out, and hopefully our state senators will also uh, vote yes on this one because it seems, again, like a fairly obvious reform that we needed a long while ago. Yep. I'm All glad right. that that's happening. Yeah. All righty. So from uh, our broken criminal legal system, let's talk about some <laughs> housing crisis-related bills. So, Hooray! Yeah. Uh, Assembly Bill 36, I mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, this is one of the bills that could pair with uh, SB 50 to make it a little bit less bad. Uh, this is the legislature's response to the failure of Proposition 10. So... Prop 10 was the ballot measure that would have repealed Costa-Hawkins, the law that stopped cities from passing new rent control measures. Back in 1995, the legislature was pushed by developers and landlords to outlaw new rent control and retroactively freeze existing rent control. This is why LA's Rent Stabilization Ordinance, the RSO, only applies to buildings built before 1978. So AB... 36 would allow local governments to establish rent control over apartments that have been rental properties for 20 years or more, but it would still not apply to single-family homes. Again, remember that most people who are sitting in our legislature own single-family homes or are landlords, so they have a vested yep. interest in stopping that. Uh, but obviously, there are some massive holes in this bill, and it would do nothing to rein in runaway rents in newer developments, like the ones we see in downtown with 50% mm-hmm. occupancy, yet the rent goes up every year, even though and all they the keep, built- they keep watering down AB 36. Every time that it gets discussed, they keep adding new amendments that are extending the amount of time that a building is going to exist before AB 36 would apply, uh, increasing the amount of rent that it, that, or the amount of in, increasing the amount of allowable increase in rent that is permitted under the law. It's just every single step of the way it keeps getting watered down. Yeah, it started out as like the building had to be 10 years old and then they doubled that to 20 because, you know, developers are like, no, you can't stop me from gouging people on my new building. Um, It's, it's, 
sort of, it's again one of these bills where it started off really, really strong, and then as it hit the different committees in the assembly, got watered down more and more and more. Uh, right now, it's still held up in the Rules Committee, so we may not see action on it this year. Hopefully, we will. Yeah, it seems like it could very easily turn into a two-year bill, just like SB 50. Uh, more housing crisis bills. So AB 891 deals with people who are seeking shelter in their cars. And this bill would require counties with more than 330,000 residents to start safe parking programs if they don't already have one. Uh, Which are awesome. Yeah. Now we see cities like LA and San Diego trying to ban people from sleeping in their cars on the street, but they're also not providing enough places for people to sleep in safe parking lots. So they would be able to access some of this grant money, but it seems to be more aimed at counties like Orange County, where they're seeing a lot of people ending up on the street in their car, but not providing safe parking. So this would force them to start these programs, give them some state level funding to get that off the, off the ground. Uh, They'd have to provide basic security make sure that like the safe parking lots are actually safe for people and not just you know a random place where you park and can get robbed uh so it, this is a good one it's also one where like it doesn't do anything to get people off the street um you know yeah. you shouldn't be living in your car for years on end uh but for a lot of people who are looking for affordable housing and can't afford it that's the only thing they got like that's probably the biggest asset that they've got to their name is their car it's the one thing they're going to let go of last and it's also the only thing they've got that's going to be shelter other than getting one of those like really cheap fire sale tents that Garcetti is blaming for a housing crisis. Yeah, because that's definitely what the problem is, and it's not a complete lack of any affordable housing anywhere. It's the cheap tents. I went to Walmart, and when I saw those tents, I was like, I don't need an apartment. That tent is only $20. (laughs) I, I, I still can't get over the fact that that was something that he actually, like, he honestly tried to blame it on the tents. It's like, no, dude, that's not what this problem is. The fact that people have tents and can get some degree of shelter is a good thing. The problem is that we don't have permanent shelter available to them that they can actually rely upon. And the only kinds of, like, emergency shelter that we're actually providing to them is so completely out of step with what they actually need and there's not nearly enough of it available. So yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, look, I I've got a rock that keeps tigers away and I don't see any tigers (laughs) when I hold my rock cause and effect how does that oh no anyway Uh, yeah yeah but so on a on another uh kind of uh safe parking type initiative we have assembly bill 302 now this is an attempt to help california community college students only community college students it doesn't apply to cal states doesn't apply to ucs who are experiencing housing insecurity so basically what it does is that it compels community colleges which have available parking lots to allow students to sleep in their cars in campus parking lots overnight it's not providing them housing again it's just saying hey you don't have to you be caught out on out. like yeah you you have to give them like some semblance of safety uh again if you're a college student in california uh you should definitely just have a safe place to live uh in california 20 like percent of the co- of the co- uh community college students who are experiencing housing insecurity and then are ending up having to sleep in their cars yeah i mean at least there's i've seen some numbers saying it might be as high as 30 or 40 percent and there's, you know, I, I've read and talked to enough people uh, in, you know, in my organizing who grew up very impoverished. And when they got to college, when they like got a scholarship and could go to a good college and had a stable bed for the first time, yep. their GPA went through the roof because they were able actually to sleep and have a safe place. 
So it's weird that we have this very robust, you know, educational system, and then we're not allowing students to fully take care of it because they're being crushed by these material uh, needs that they have when we're like, hey, this is an incredibly expensive state to live in. You can't earn a lot of money because you're going to school full time, but also we're not going to provide you what you need to take full advantage of this. Uh, it just seems self-defeating. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's being pretty, uh, pretty generous to call it a robust educational system. But uh, that being said, this is it's good that to see that we're at least starting to make some inroads in terms of making sure that these students who are suffering from housing insecurity and who are having to you know, make do with the fact that they're like living out of their, their vans or their cars and are having to rely entirely upon uh, campus services like taking their showers at the school gym, uh, you know, uh, stealing naps in the library, which people do all the time anyway, because, you know, a lot of people study there 24 hours a day, <laughs> but like this, they're completely reliant upon the school facilities for all of these things that they need. But it just, come on, we've yeah. got to do better than just giving them a safe parking space. We've got to be able to promise that all of the students who are in this state and are going to these schools, especially community colleges and state, like the Cal States and the, and the, 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 uh, UC system that we've got to be able to guarantee that all of these kids have housing. I can't understand how we've gotten a, to this point at a bare minimum, but at least for now, both AB 891 and uh, AB 302 passed out of the assembly. Uh, so they will be going to the Senate. So there is some measure of relief coming, but That's it's not not going to be hooray. everything that we need. <laughs> yeah. So let's move on to government transparency. So as you all, all right. know, we are huge fans of the California Public Records Act uh, because it's it allows fun. you to get all of the stuff that the bids and your local government wants to keep hidden from you. <laughs> So AB 289 would create a statewide ombudsman for the California public for CPRA requests. Uh, so essentially, this would allow the office to override decisions at a local level which deny the request. Like if you say to the yeah. Hollywood bid, like how much money did you spend beating up homeless people last year? And they're like, we don't have to tell you. You can go to the ombudsman and they can override that. So nice. that should help, like, especially muckraking journalists like ourselves and Michael Kolhas to get more <laughs> of this information that's really important because a lot of the decisions that are screwing up our city and our state are happening at a micro-local level, and there's a lot of yeah. overlapping small bureaucracies that, like, it's hard to keep track of if you're not constantly doing that. And they also have a vested interest in fighting against you when you're doing that. Um, so the, the ombudsman would be able to review and overturn these denials. They'd be able to compel that the records be turned over. Uh, and in a win for transparency, it passed out of the assembly and will be heading to the Senate. Uh, I'm really excited for this one because like, it'll be good to you know, have a teacher to go tattle on when your local government is not doing what they're compelled to do under the law. So does this actually apply to like the SB 1421 requests that are no, going because SB, the sheriff and whatnot? Because SB 1421 requests aren't specifically CPRA requests. So there are bigger carve-outs uh -huh. in SB, 20, SB 1421 than there are in CPRA. Um, and we, that's sort of by design. Can like, we ramp the not, two of them together for this? Because I mean, I, I, we keep hearing stories about the sheriff's departments that are just straight up denying 
uh, you know, access to this information or are, are not even responding to requests from journalists or like, destroying it. Like the oh, city yeah. of Long Beach uh, yes. and the city of, of Inglewood basically like pulled all their old files out of the, the storage unit and just threw a match on it. We're like, oops, Jeez. we destroyed all of the old records. Sorry. Can't have them. Can't help you. Um. Uh, the, the other thing that's that, you know, to keep in mind as far as transparency and cops go is we still have these things called Brady lists. And these are lists that every single department in the state keeps about their problem officers, but will not share with the public. And so it's still up for debate uh, and it's still working its way through the court whether or not those Brady lists should be made public. And I know like Ace is really just like licking his chops and waiting for the day the Brady lists become public because if an officer is on that Brady list and they show up on the stand, it is going to be so much easier for a defense attorney to be like, so you have this history of being a terrible, terrible person. Why should we believe you? Um, yeah. it, you know, why? It, it, I, I mean, how are these things not already public record at this point? Like, if they're if the sheriff is maintaining a list of their own problem officers that they don't want to be having, like, give evidence or do these kinds of investigations, why do we not know about that? Well, a, why are they still working there? B, why do we not know about it as the public? And C, why the hell do the public defenders not know about it ahead of time when that's something that is materially important for the cases that they're trying? Remember, cops are agents of the state, and a state, like any organism, its first job is to ensure its own survival. So, of course, it's going to protect its agents. And it's, again, like, you know, we have this us versus them mentality that's kind of written into our laws that we don't interrogate very much, and we really need to. Like, the police, if they're going to exist, should not be an antagonistic force uh, in society, but that's exactly how we treat them. Uh, Alex Vitale, The End of Policing. Everyone should read it. Just plowing it Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's such a good book. Um, let's move on to Super some good news. For, yes, very good. Yeah, and also, like, really good, like, if you have a friend that's like, no, the cops are okay, like, just have them read the first <laughs> chapter or two, and it will at least get to the point where they're like, oh, maybe the cops aren't a good solution to our societal problems. Um, yeah. But <laughs> before we get too bogged down in the, in the cops, you guys stuff, we do have some really good news for parents. So Assembly Bill Hooray. 190 made its way through the Assembly. It will extend paid time off for parents to six weeks and make the benefits equal to 100% of their wages. So at this point in time, often parental leave benefits are a combination of employer-paid benefits and state benefits. Uh, I don't think this will find too much resistance in the Senate, but we'll have to see how the budget hawks are feeling. But this is a really good move for people who want to have kids because, you know, in this shocking twist of of fate, uh, in order for society to move forward, we have to have children. (laughs) It's weird. Like, we can't asexually reproduce yet. So somebody has got to be out there having kids, and they probably Uh, want the time to get to know their children and raise them in a healthy, loving, well-rounded environment. So, you know, we we should probably encourage that. that. I mean, isn't it like in in Finland, don't you get six months? Like, why why just six weeks? But I I guess most, most states in this country don't even give any. So hooray for California, at least stepping it up with six weeks now. I think it's, it's us and Papua New Guinea are like the, two nations in the world that don't oh, provide mandatory parental leave. So at least California is doing something in the right direction. But again, as always, still not enough. Uh, yeah. So let's let's move on to one of our favorite topics, uh, climate change and oil extraction, because we had a few bills going yeah. through. Uh, we're still not talking a Green New Deal for California overall, but we did have AB 409, which is a good step towards like at least laying the groundwork for a Green New Deal. So without getting mm-hmm. too much into the weeds, 409 would establish a grant program 
program, a competitive grant program, because we can't just give money to anyone. You know, oh, we have to make we have to do this lottery lotteryism and make people compete for their their tax dollars. Uh, but it would help local governments plan for climate change events, specifically around agriculture. So it wouldn't be a lot of help to like L.A., but it would be a big help out in like the Imperial Valley and oh, yeah, and like the sure. Central Valley and places where like it is the breadbasket of America. Like that is where we grow the majority of the of the country's food now, uh, if not the world. You know, a lot of what we grow yes. in California gets exported, yes, uh, and we're not really. You know, we haven't talked about too much. Like, what happens if we hit a ten-year drought? Like, what happens if the almonds drink all of the water? How are we going to grow like the food that we need to eat? So, this uh. would at least help build some of the infrastructure we need to mitigate the worst effects of climate change. Uh, it did pass out of the assembly on Thursday, so it's going to be heading to the Senate. Um, little steps. We're kind of shuffling our way towards a solution. It's. Still not perfect, but at least we see people in Sacramento are thinking about this and, and at least trying to move in the right direction. Which is good. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it better, better little than nothing, I guess. I mean, yeah, and I, we do only have literally a decade to deal with all of these things in a f- fundamentally, like, massive structural way, but uh, don't get, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, 415 parts per million. If you don't know what that means, Google it and it'll scare the hell out of you. Uh, But moving on to oil wells, uh, Assembly Bill 1328 is going to be making its way to the Senate as well. Uh, This bill will make it easier for the state to regulate closed and plugged oil wells. So like right now, drilling sites have very loose regulation when they decide to decommission wells. They basically just have to tell the state, hey, we're not going to use that anymore. This bill would require them to not only file file paperwork with the state, but also to conduct testing at the site and report those results. Because right now, a lot of these companies do the testing. They just don't tell anyone what it is because uh, it would make them look bad and also be on the hook for all yeah. the terrible, terrible health effects of having drilled oil there. And, yeah. and as as this may seem a little trivial, but as we move away from fossil fuels, the state's going to have to deal with thousands of oil wells that are both active and idle. Permanently closing them in a safe manner is critical for protecting our communities and also guaranteeing that these sites are no longer polluting ecosystems, which is something we don't talk about. Like, there's a lot of abandoned extraction industry here in California that's still causing a lot of harm, but just none of the private corporations that did the extracting or profited from it claim ownership. So it's just sort of sitting there like a big festering wound on our state. Uh, And this will at least hold uh, the, the current oil extractors responsible for making sure that this stuff is safe. While the oil industry in this state claims that they're very highly regulated, we know they're still causing harm all across California, especially here in L.A. Uh, you know, a statistic we like to cite is down in Wilmington, they're drilling oil 35 feet from houses. Uh, yeah. That can't be good for you. Uh, we so know, what, you know, what happened with the 2500 setback rule that was being proposed to the state assembly? Oh, this was a, a this Senate? is a different bill. This is a, a different yeah, bill. Yeah. You, yeah. So that bill is currently like just kind of floating. It's also got some carve outs coming. I'm kind of waiting to see what happens uh, because I believe that was AB 345. It had uh, some really interesting parts to it. Uh, our assembly is doing their their master's bidding by gutting that bill. Um, yep. Hopefully we'll still get that. Uh, it looks like we might be getting some action on the 2500 foot setbacks at the LA city level, but at the state level, still not. We also have a lot of federal land here in California. Uh, We can't shut down the oil wells on federal land, and that's a a hill that we'll have to climb sooner rather than later uh, because we know the Trump administration wants more drilling in our environment, not less, uh, and that's just going to leave... Drill, Yeah, it's going to leave us with uh, more toxic messes to clean up. 
so last one, and this is actually a happy note to end on, uh, uh, an education bill that went through. Assembly oh, yeah. Bill 1460 uh, passed. Uh-huh. This will mandate ethnic studies as part of the required curriculum to graduate from high school, uh, which is a really big win. Yeah. Uh, So this bill has seen a lot of energy coming from educators, coming from Black Lives Matter, and coming from community activists. Uh, It's a small bill, but I really want to mention it because it will have a huge impact on how we're giving students a well-rounded education before sending them off. And, you know, as we get obsessed with STEM in our society, we need to remember, like, there's more there than than just math. And to to those of us like me who are not math-inclined and are, in fact, uh, deathly afraid of numbers, uh, n- knowing that there are other things to be good at and and other things to learn is very very helpful. Well, and so, it's also really important for people to understand. Like a lot of the times, people are graduating from schools here in California without really understanding the history of the people who are you know part of the rich tapestry of culture that we have here in California and especially things related to studies of the native populations that used to be so prevalent in California before the colonization and you know conquest of the land uh and having an ethnic studies class requirement uh it might sound like it's a small thing but really this does it fundamentally can change the conversation and it's so important for uh, like you said, making sure that the students have a good, well-rounded education as they're coming out of school. Exactly. So that's gonna that's gonna gonna wrap my list of the bills that did get votes this week. There are again, like I said, like two thousand votes in the assembly or two thousand bills in the assembly. <laughs> so we'll probably be coming back to this uh, over the next several weeks. Um, the the voting season, at least for the the first round of bills, is going to be over here in a couple of weeks. So we we won't yep. be able to do this to you every week. Uh, but there were a couple of bills that I wanted to talk about <laughs> that have gotten uh, essentially kneecapped, and these were really exciting housing bills. And yeah, uh, again, our assembly is just showing you know which which class they're in uh so let's start off with assembly bill 1481 and this was originally written to stop no cause evictions in the state of california so no cause evictions is basically your landlord can just show up one day and be like you have 60 or 90 days depending on how they want to do it to get the hell out uh for most tenants they don't really have any way to fight this like you can go get a lawyer but no cause evictions are uh very legal in the state of california so when your landlord wants you out you pretty much just have to get out. You can look at the 102-year-old woman in Ladera Heights who's being kicked out because her landlord wants to give her place to his daughter who just graduated from law school, which, by the way, if you just graduated from law school and you got to go live with mommy and daddy, like... I'm sorry, like lawyers make a ton of money. Like you could go get yourself a very decent job and be able to afford like a decent apartment. Like this is just absolutely ridiculous. But so this bill, 1421, would would seek to to stop that, or it did originally. Uh, On Monday, it basically turned into an eviction fee bill. Instead of forcing landlords to prove that they have a good reason to evict someone, AB 1420... AB 1481 now mandates relocation assistance for displaced tenants. So depending Which on is how so not the same thing. Exactly. It's and depending on how long a tenant's been in their home, the level of required assistance is either two months or three months. Which, if you've tried to move in the city of LA, like three months rent, like that's nice, but you're going to eat that up in your deposit on your next place. Plus, For like sure. spending a thousand dollars just moving your stuff from one place to the other. Um, and on top of that, like most of the people that are getting evicted from these units, if they've been there for a long time. If it's a rent-stabilized unit, they're paying something significantly below what you're able to find at market rate rents uh, around the city. And it's not like we have uh, the um, the clause, we, we, you know, part of Costa Hawkins was 
making it illegal to have any kind of a vacancy uh, vacancy control measures set up in these states or anywhere in the state, so that if you know if uh, if you get evicted from an apartment. The landlord, then the next person who comes in doesn't get to, you know, take over what the previous rent values were. Everything immediately just jumps straight up to the market rate. And because of that, if you've been living in a place for 20 or 30 years and then you're getting evicted, there is no possible way that you're going to be able to find something at the same rent that you had before anywhere. And if you're living on a fixed income like Social Security, you're just completely SOL. There is nothing available to you. And this is part of why like the senior population has been historically like for the last few years the single fastest growing segment of the houseless on the of, of the unhoused population in LA county and it's so depressing so depressing well it, it's also one of these things where you know, forcing a landlord to pay this fee isn't really punishing them because they're just going to up the no, rent no they're going to make so much person. more money back yeah. it's it, it now just <laughs> guarantees that that rent will jump a bunch more because the landlord's like, yes. oh, I just had to cut like, you know, a $7,000 check to this family to force them to move. Well, over the next year, I'm just going to make my seven grand back by upping the rent by like 500 bucks a month. Um, it's yeah, it's, yeah, Un- it's unbelievable. It, it's, it's, it basically gutted the entire point of the bill. Uh, it's one of these things where like the best laid plans of mice and men just get shot in the head by people who would rather see <laughs> landlords and developers making money. Uh, on that subject, <sighs> Assembly Bill 1482 was similarly gutted, uh, but this one at the author's request. So 1482 yeah. was a statewide cap on rent. Uh, it would have applied to uh, buildings that aren't as as old as AB 36. So basically, it would have limited rent increases, capping it at inflation plus 5%. So for most years, this would mean that your rent could only rise by about 8%. You know, you figure 3% inflation plus uh, the 5% base. However, for some reason, Assemblymember Chu added a sundown provision, which would bring the rent cap regime to an end in 2030. Again, I'm not sure what the Assembly knows. I I don't understand. they, well, they keep picking 2030 as the sundown for like all these rent caps. And like, is, do they know that rent is going to like stop mattering in 2030? Like, maybe are all we the just going to burn down? Are we just going to float off into the ocean and then all of California will be captured by the Mellow Act? I, these uh. are questions that I have. <laughs> Uh, at the same time, uh, however, at the same time, a provision was added to the bill to protect affordable housing covenants, and this is actually kind of cool. So we've discussed these a bit in the context of the Hillside Villa Apartments, which is the apartment building in Chinatown where the the affordable housing covenant is expiring and the landlord is trying to like double everyone's rent. Uh, The affordable housing covenants are 30-year agreements between a landlord and the local government that guarantee affordable rent in exchange for tax incentives. So under 1482, Mm -hmm. when these covenants expire, the owner would be required to notify the state and other local entities. And if the landlord chooses not to continue the covenant, must give these entities the right to make a purchase offer. Now, there's no mandate that's, that this offer be accepted so the landlord can just like get the offer and be like i don't care about that i'd rather sell it for more money to a developer or continue to pull down you know passive income through rent but at least it gives mm-hmm. the city and the county and the state the option to come in and save the day which i'm sure in a few cases will probably happen but at the same time most landlords will probably see a bigger payday elsewhere so for sure all all in all 1481 and 1482 are both cynical examples of good ideas they were spoiled by the legislature to protect the capital class. Uh, whether either bill makes it into law now is way less important. What protections they will bring are weak and have an expiration date. 
What renters need is lasting protection and affordable housing, not sundown provisions and loopholes. So it should probably be noted that of all the state senators and assembly members, only one does not own their own home. And I know I've said that a couple times in this reading. Mm -hmm. We're saying it again because we need to like understand who's making our decisions and why they're making them. It's not random. They're protecting their class interest. Uh, not to be too class reductionist at this, but it's it's this is a pretty you know obvious example of this. Um, while we are recording this episode, there are some other important bills that are going up for a vote. Uh, so we'll have some updates on those next week. Uh, but I do want to flag AB 857, which is the public banking bill, which you yep. should all be very familiar with because of the work that Ground Game did, and especially Chris, you did on Charter yeah. Amendment B. <laughs> and while right. Charter Amendment B came painfully close to passing last November. Uh, it did not. So hopefully this Correct. bill will finally make public banking a reality here in California. One of its cool features is that if you're starting a public bank locally in California, you have to partner with a local credit union because they don't Which want you... Yeah, they don't want you to... They don't want the state bank's or the local public banks to be competing with local credit unions, and that also provides kind of an infrastructure for them to operate in. So you wouldn't have to be reinventing the wheel in order to start like a new public bank in a smaller city. Uh, it's which still so short good. of what I want, which is like a full California, you know, public bank because we are oh, the fifth yeah. largest economy <laughs> in the world, and we um, absolutely you know, should have one. And we could, you know, just expropriate all of Apple's money and have like a trillion dollars there. <laughs> We're coming uh, to you. We're coming yeah. to you. Uh, but, you know, short of that, you know, this is a really good step in the right direction. So keep an eye on that one. It was supposed to go up for a vote today. It did not. So hopefully it'll be coming up next week and hopefully we'll have some good news to report on it. Uh, of course, it's going to have a much harder fight, I think, in the Senate uh, where, yeah. you know, there are we'll more conservative bodies. So we'll, we'll kind of mm -hmm. see what happens. So uh, for everyone who made it this far into the, our, our incredibly long podcast. Yeah, this uh, is probably the longest we've ever produced. <laughs> it's, it's pretty. It, this one's going, you know, the, the numbers are ticking away. Uh, but I was going to say, you know, this seems uh, probably pretty overwhelming, uh, but don't worry about that because it totally is. Like, there are thousands of bills that are being considered in front of the legislature this session. So if you can't follow them all, just imagine what the folks voting on these bills are going through and how can we expect them to make like fully informed decisions when they vote on them? Like, this is an overwhelming amount of information for any single human or small group of humans to try and parse. So I, I think it, it kind of drives the fundamental problem of we have really large government structures that are trying to do a lot in a very dark and opaque way. Uh, and even our attempts to like talk about everything that's happening, you know, I can't discuss all 2,000 bills in the assembly for this year, even if we devoted every single podcast we did yeah, there's no way. just to the there's bills in the assembly. There's no way we could hit that. <laughs> yeah, we would still fall behind. So this is... Oh, for sure. Yeah, this is a, a, a big a big mountain to climb. Um, but that's going to wrap it for uh, my assembly update. Next week, look forward to the Senate update. Um, I... Uh, don't have any like nifty fun stuff going on in LA this week to, to clue you in about, but Chris, you probably know a couple of cool things. Well, there's going to be a really great uh, meeting coming up here. I expect, uh, it, I mean, it's these, these folks are always great and it's going to be happening on Sunday. It's uh, the no Olympics committee from, uh, or, or group rather from DSA is going to be having a meeting on Sunday at 2 PM at the unite here, local 11, uh, come join us and talk about why the Olympics are, are not going to be a good thing for Los Angeles and why we need to not have them happen. 
Yeah, and, and just to let you all know, if you do show up for this one, when you go into Unite Here Local 11, you're going to go through the doors, you're going to turn right, and you're going to go down into the stairs, uh, into the scary-looking basement. It's not really <laughs> a scary-looking basement. There's a lot of offices and meeting rooms down there, um, but it's kind of easy to get lost in their labyrinthine yes. building. Uh, but go down the stairs, and you should be able to, to find the meeting room. And they are a really amazing group, and if you've been listening to us for a while, you know that uh, they've done some really good shows with us. So I highly encourage you to show up there and get involved. Yep, I don't really have anything else uh, on the top of my head. Um, I feel bad for not having. No, I think I think that was good. Time, uh, <laughs> congratulations to to all the kids that went out and, and struck for the climate today. Oh uh, yeah, that was great. They're going to be out there Friday after Friday after Friday because again, we've got about a decade, and that's you know putting the rosy cast on it. So yeah. to leave you all on a very high note, um, never lose your sense of outrage because we're really going to need that anger, and we're going to need it channeled in the right ways in the years to come because we got a lot of community and solidarity. To build but thank you for tuning in this week chris thank you very much for bearing with me through this incredibly long <laughs> assembly update yep thanks guys this has been a lot of fun uh lots of information about the assembly and uh we'll talk to you again soon